Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Lions fans. It's time for the podcast you've been waiting for. The show where Kool-Aid runs blue. Faces turn red. And rose-colored glasses never go out of style. This is the Detroit Lions podcast. Hey, brother, how you doing? I don't know the last time I was late to anything. Not me. Not you. Not that me. is definitely not you. Um, I will just say, granted, I don't get into Allen Park very much during the season, but you're always there when I get there. Um, and that's a credit to you. It's, Probably there I, when I, you're I leaving, too, to be honest. Oh, Most of the time, yeah. shots fired. <laughs> How you doing, Justin? Uh, I'm all right. I'm all yeah, right. Yeah. I want to. I want to ask you a, a, a question, just a little bit of a work question. This year, covering the Lions, yep. it's a different team than you've been able to cover probably in the entirety of your time covering the team. What makes it different for you, having a team that's uh, that's done this well in a year versus other years of covering them? I would say 2011 wasn't all that different at this, at least this stage of the year. I think expectations are probably a little bit higher given the way last season ended. Uh, but um, probably the, the biggest change is everyone's easier to deal with. And that, you know, it's not just the coaches, it's the players, it's people in the building, it's fans, it's people on Twitter. Like everybody's just in a little bit better mood. And, uh, look, that that kind of stuff rubs off on you on a, a day-to-day basis, right? Like when you're dealing with negativity from every direction, it doesn't matter what you do um, that, that has a way of grinding on you. So um, a positive record results in positivity all the way around and, um, you know, makes life a, a little bit more pleasant. That, that's nice. That's nice. Absolutely. Pleasant's good. <laughs> Well, how were things? Good. How um, were things after the Seattle game? Did that feel more like the old days? No, because look, I think um, this team's expectations were what they were, but they were also real. And so, um, look, nobody expected this team to go sixteen and zero. They they just didn't. Or seventeen and zero. I guess they play seventeen games now. I'll, I'll okay. get used to it eventually. Uh, where are the Chargers located? I I can never remember, but. Um, Look, that you you look at that game, and there were some sloppy plays by the offense that put the defense in bad positions. Um, it, it it wasn't their best game, uh, but there there were still kinks to be ironed out. There were still new pieces being implemented. So, um, 
you know, Seattle, not so much. I, I would say Baltimore, probably more so, you know, to, to have a standard now set. And then you go into um, uh, a heavyweight title fight against a, a very, very good opponent and to, to get smashed the way they did. I, I think there was some uh, negativity uh, that, that percolated through, through that week, but look, they're, they're on their way up. They're not at the top yet. And there's, there's still work to be done. There's still probably, um, you know, pieces to be added. It, it's, it's, you know, I'm not saying they, they can't win a Super Bowl this year, but it's, there's still probably a little bit away and still trying to figure out their way. It's, it's a build. They're in year three of the build. They're ahead of the curve in the build. And so, um, you know, it's, I just think some of these things that are happening, uh, some of the losses are, are to be expected with a, a young team still figuring it out. Let me ask you about the reaction between the loss in Baltimore and then how they played against the Raiders. Cause they, they absolutely destroyed the Raiders, but they didn't really reflect that on the scoreboard. What was the reaction in the locker room and in the coaching staff after that? Was it, did they treat it like, like we got to do a lot better than this or were they, you know, feeling it pretty good? Yeah, look, the the locker room following that the Baltimore Ravens loss was um, the the message was pretty consistent. That wasn't who we were. Um, we're not frauds, you know. They were they were trying to implement this thing that we got to get back to doing what we do. Um, that's you know, for for lack of a better word, being a, a gritty football team. And and look, the 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 Raiders win was kind of ugly. Uh, particularly from the offensive end, right? You have uh, five trips to the red zone. You, you punch it into the end zone just one time. Uh, you turn the ball over three times. Um, you know, Goff, Goff has had some sloppy moments this season. That was, you know, another one with, with his interception that resulted in a pick six. So, um, look, the, the Raiders are a bad football team, um, as reflected by their recent decision to to fire their uh, coach and GMs. But, I say this all the time, like you can only knock down the pins the way they're set up and to, to come out of that game with, with a double digit victory while playing as sloppy as you did, I, I think we still reflects that this is a good, not great football team, right? Like you, you did enough to still win handily, but uh, I don't know, like let, let's just pretend that was the Chiefs versus the Raiders. You know, that might've been a 50 to 10 game. It, it just might have been. And I think that's where the Lions need to be is they need to more consistently execute on both sides of the ball. The defense played pretty, pretty damn well in that game, but, but the offense um, it's, it's stumbling a little bit right now and they've got a bye week to kind of maybe figure some of that stuff out. Who knows? Maybe uh, Donovan Peoples Jones will, will be the uh, answer to all their woes. I, I don't know, but um, look, they've got, they've got some things to iron out during the, uh, the break here. Uh, DeAndre Swift was the answer to Philadelphia's woes. It seems well, not that they had a whole lot of woes going on, but he did. He did find a resurgence when he got home. So maybe coming it's home wild. was a special. I mean, like, I, I mean, just I know we're not talking about Swift here, but like mm-hmm. that is a guy that everybody wanted to see oh, carry the ball here more. And I just kept saying, like, you can't. He's gonna break. He's gonna break. And every single time they did give him the ball more, he broke. And. uh to to see him stay healthy, I mean, God bless him. You know, good good for him to to be having this run. But that guy did not exist here. 
just no. that that is the reality of it. And you know, I'm sure Saints fans in some way, shape, or form feel the same way about Anzalone, right? Like yeah. just some guys are injury prone early in their career yeah. and they can't get out of their own way with uh different conditions. It's not their own fault. You know, it's like they're they're putting in the effort, but uh look, there's Anzalone's played a lot of snaps here and, and had very minimal injury issues. So just sometimes that's the way it goes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I want to go back to something you were saying about um the team being on a on a rebuild. Um, it's and it's it's something that you're you're relatively unique amongst the the writers because you've got a very balanced view of the team. A lot of fans were up in arms and and shaking their fists at the sky and the whole yelling at clouds, the whole thing about not making the big signing at the trade deadline and all that. And the the, the kind of the place where I'm at mentally on this is 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 very similar. No one expects us to win the Super Bowl. Is there a chance? Heck yeah, there's always a chance because we're we're very very likely going to make the pay- playoffs. I think second most likely in Vegas right now to make the playoffs this year. Um, very likely to make the playoffs, and we've seen a nine and seven uh, Giants team mumble their way all the way through the into the wind of the Super Bowl. Right? I mean, who knew? But so so uh, sure, there's a possibility, but the expectation isn't there. What this team has been able to do, what Brad Holmes has been able to do is to continually have, you know, Dan does this, but the arc's really been like like this over the course of three years for the team and the improvement in play and record and in, in, in all of those things. And he's done it almost solely through the draft. Even the guys he picked up in the offseason, you get CJ, GJ injured, you get Mosley out injured, right? It's mostly and in, almost entirely through the draft. The idea is the window's open. And you can close, you can set a time for that window to close by signing some big, onerous contracts, which always are, are, are the ones from free agency. If they continue on this track and, and Brad, with his history, can continue to draft this way, it seems like unless you lose Brad, the scouting department, Dorsey, whatever combination that they have there, it could go on in perpetuity. And, and I say that because they can manage the cap completely uh, you know, have the complete the cap completely managed throughout this period of just through solid drafting, through great drafting. Really, he's Brad Holmes has shown an incredible ability amongst GMs for to find talent. Yeah. Um. Look, I did a pre-trade deadline article, and it just said, "Look, there's there's four paths for the Lions to go here. There's the the home run swing. You know, it's going out and getting a." Brian Burns or uh, I guess Chase Young, if you want to throw him in that, that home run category, there's the um, solid starter route. So you're still probably paying a premium draft draft as a, you know, just Cortland Sutton's Sutton's the first name to come off the the top of my head, you know, a a Mm -hmm. receiver or a a position player. That's um, got a lot of production and starts under his belt, not a superstar, right? Um, Unsexy depth and do nothing. And, and, you know, they, they, Kind of, you know, certainly with the way Peoples Jones is playing this year, probably checks more under unsexy depth. But you know, if that happened in the off season, maybe uh, goes under solid starter category. So he's some, he's somewhere in between there. But um, with the home run swing, that's what we're focusing on here, right? Like, yeah, you you look at the multiple factors, and and I know people say, oh my god, they Forty ers gave up a third round pick for for Chase Young, and and yeah, that's that's not a whole lot. Um, in terms of a, a rental, but you you listen to the words Dan Campbell says that it's got to be right on multiple fronts. It's got to be personality. It's got to be cost. It's got to be 
everything. And so um, if I'm trading for a big-time player, I'm looking for him not to be a stopgap. This is not a team that's looking for a stopgap and just trying to get to one round further in the playoffs is the team that's looking to build something long-term. It's always been about building something long-term. So any superstar I'm trading for comes with the idea that I want to sign that player long-term. And so now you're talking superstar level contract, you know, for, for Burns, maybe it's $24 million a year or, um, Sertan, if he was available, which I'm, I'm not sure he ever was, but now you're paying two first round picks plus you're paying the highest end cornerback contract. And that's, that's fine. That's what you pay for an elite player, but you recognize that within the framework of where this roster is and that the fact that they're going to pay Jared Goff sometime soon, that they have to pay Amon Ross St. Brown sometime soon. Panay Sewell is not that far off from getting a contract and certainly would fall within the window of whatever extension you give one of these players you acquire. And so it just adds up to some complicated math because there's only so many guys that you can afford to pay 20 plus million a season. And they've kind of already declared, you know, whether with words or actions that, that St. Brown and Sewell are the foundation of this franchise I think we all recognize that at some point golf's going to get extended. And so um, it, it just goes back to what you said that, that this GM's bread and butter is the draft. And you find that a lot of the great franchises do an excellent job of building through the draft and then supplementally adding not superstars, but solid pieces starters through free agency to fill their, their voids, their holes. And so, um, you know, it, would a third round pick have been a devastating loss for the Lions to, to go out and get a, a Chase Young? No, it, it wouldn't have. But um, it's just not the way this GM has gone about his business, and he's not one to uh, deviate from, from his plan. I'm going to figure out how to shut off this email <laughs> that I got open, apparently. Everyone said, please no, run, run, get away. You talked about like Cam Sutton is the ideal of what the free agency, what how this team is going to use free agency. A good starter, not a huge name, but a, a guy that comes in. He's really smart. He loves football. He's he's he gets along well. He's coachable. Um, has some leadership skills. Has some initiative on his own, um, and and has played very well. And, and a contract that is okay. probably. Yeah, 60, 65% of, of top of market for the position, right? You're not paying a guy $25 million, You're paying him, I think it was three and three for 39 I can't remember off the top of my head. But, yeah, I believe so. Um, yeah. you know, a far more reasonable cost that, that kind of shoehorns into what you're, you're doing big picture. Yeah. yeah. So you brought it up, so I'll ask. Goff extension. We're going to see it by the end of the bye week? I don't think so. I but I mean who who knows? Um, you know, I really thought there was a, a decent chance they got it done in training camp. That's been kind of the, the framework for the big extensions for um for the it's not that they don't do extensions in mid season. Um Fox I think was was one that they maybe did in the middle of the year. Uh but I mean those really, really big uh franchise altering budget extensions typically get done in the off season. Um, we, we've seen that with a couple players already. Uh, and so they have, they have a full season to get it done. And so I, I think that probably the more likely thing is that it'll get done sometime between next end of May to 
end of July. Okay. Makes sense. Um, let me, th- I'm going to throw back a little bit and I, I assume you remember this. Um, this is one of my favorite all time articles, Justin. And, and you know, I, I've told you, I mean, I've told you just personally, person to person, you're, you're my favorite of the writers out there. You, you put, um, incredible work together and and you know I, like I, I said for you know the idea of like the 1950s fedora wearing guy with a little press card up in the top that's to me is is when journalism was was, was the real deal and did great great work because people did investigative stuff they did ask their own questions they found ways to talk to people and go to get items and, and really develop news based on uh, the information out there and you do a really really good job of presenting the facts and presenting things that you're thinking about and things that you've kind of chased down in a way where you're not, te- and, and, you know, none of your headlines ever end. And this is why you should be angry or this is why you should feel whatever. It's all just very well presented, balanced stuff. But you put together a longer form piece back in March. Uh, I'll just going to read the title here. Chris Spielman embraces the background role with the Lions where the Super Bowl win is the number one goal. That was a spectacular piece of work. And I just want to kind of go into it. And I, 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 I ask people, go, go check it out. Go Detroit News. You can search it. It's in there. It's a great article. But what went into putting that together? How much time did you spend with Spielman? How much time did you, how many times did you go back to talk to him? And, and, and what was the thought process as you rolled through that, putting that, that piece together? Um, so I think people that, that know Chris Spielman over the years is, um, He's, he's largely been a pretty accessible guy through his, um, you know, post-playing day careers. But after he took the Lions position, that accessibility just went to zero. <laughs> and, and that's, that's fine. I mean, occasionally you'd see him walking out of the practice field to the practice field, and you can have a, a really quick, casual conversation. But in terms of um, on-record interview stuff, no. I mean, just it went completely to zero. And um you know, I first reached out maybe six months in, like midway through point of the his first season here, and got the kind of the feedback. Like uh, Chris would prefer to hold off any interviews to the off season. Okay, tried in the off season, radio silence. Um, tried again, uh, maybe training camp or, or early season the next year, and kind of the same thing. Like there was there was no interest, and so finally, I think it was probably January. I, I reached out and I was like. Can can we can we get something set up with Spielman? Any anything like what? When's a good time? And uh, you know they they said we'll we'll work with them. We'll we'll look into it. We'll talk to them. And I think I talked to him the day before I left to the combine. So that that tells you like it was still a good six, seven, eight weeks. And so like at that point, it's it's a one and done. Like that that's how I have to view it. It's a one and done. So I went in there with a really long list of bullet points that were kind of all over the place and organized, but like just, just something that I could have as starting points. But the way these things work, like I'll just give you another example. Like I, I got a chance to interview Sheila Ford a few years ago and I went in there with like 15 bullet points of questions I wanted to ask. I knew I had a really limited window, 15 to 20 minutes. I got to two, two questions because uh, she, she talked a lot and um, they were, it was a different interview than I expected. It was a different topic. The story idea that I had going in changed. And so um, I don't, I don't know if I had like a set time to deal with Spielman. Um, I know we went a little over an hour 
Uh, I hit a lot of those bullet points, but you know, a lot of things he said changed the direction or added um, follow-ups that that naturally went into the question. So, um, you know, it was, it was probably 70, 80, 90 minutes. I don't know. Um, but it, it really was. It was just one sit-down interview with um, – you know, the research on the front end and the, and the research on the back end to, to make sure that it fully, you know, formed a, a story. But I, I kind of knew the questions. I, I mean, I had two years to think about it, right? Like I, I knew what I wanted to know. I knew what fans wanted to know because I was getting, I was getting more emails about Chris Spielman than just about any topic. Like, what is this guy doing? Like he is a beloved icon here. I mean, like a, a tick below a Barry Sanders, right? Like he is beloved. And so, um, and you know, look, when, when he got going and when he agreed to do this interview, he, he slipped back into the Chris Spielman of the old, right? He's a, he's a good talker. He's an interesting talker. He has uh, well-formed thoughts and interesting stories on all kinds of topics. And so the, the story itself was, was very easy. It was just, uh, pinning him down to be comfortable to talk about himself within this role. I think his, the, the one quote and you, you opened with it was, I just want to be all things to all people. That's the goal. Yeah. I think that might've been the last thing he said to me in our, uh, our full interview. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really incredible because th- this, it, you can read that a million ways, but when you look at him during training camp, for example, out there with the sand filling the divots that really, yeah. that really puts, I think casts a Paul and, and belies the meaning behind what he was saying when he said that, like there's, there's no, no spot below him to help this organization be whatever it can be. Yeah. And I mean, like, look, I, I went in there, you know, thinking I was going to hear about him doing some of the stuff that I knew he was doing, helping out with the linebackers or uh, studying linebackers in the draft. Um, and, and you really realized how much bigger his role was. And I would say nothing is bigger for Chris Spielman than breaking down the walls that the previous regime built up that Sheila basically said, you are my wrecking ball, Chris. You are my, and I mean, a wrecking ball sounds destructive it, and it, it's not that, but there were these, these walls of secrecy and division put up within the organization and, Look at Matt Patricia's not alone in doing this in the NFL, but it certainly um, is reflective of the Patriot way, right? Like uh, I think you saw it recently, actually, in the the Bidwell article. If uh, anybody read that in uh, on ESPN, like with women being forced to use different staircases, right? Like, but it and it wasn't um, it wasn't of uh, by by gender or race or anything like that at, at Allen Park, but there was that wall put up between football and non-football sides and i had a another player i sat down i i won't i won't say his name because i'm pretty sure he didn't want it on the record but he said i hated walking around the building because you were always on eggshells because you didn't know whether you could say hello to someone without getting them in trouble and like that's that's a ridiculous thing you don't know if you could say hello to the janitor or you could say hello to a cafeteria staff or you can um, but that was the culture that existed in the Patricia Quinn era. And so, um, you know, Sheila really was intent on, on breaking down walls, not only in the practice facility, but the, the lack of a bridge between Ford field and, and the, um, the, the team headquarters in Allen park, like 
there were so many people she told me that like had never been to Allen Park that worked at Ford Field, you know, and that includes sales staff or uh, security. Like, and so she's she wanted Spielman to be that bridge. Um, she wanted him to be that wrecking ball of those walls and uh, to to hear some of the things he was doing with teaching the the football one on one. And he says one on one, like we're talking probably two hundred one, three hundred one. Like he's he's getting into you know coverage rotations and stuff like like stuff that is beyond 101 but then also going into to Ford Field and opening up a meeting to anyone that wants to attend where he will answer any question honestly about the previous game with the only rule being you can't talk about it after it that that's an unbelievable um, cultural thing, but what it does is it gets every single person in the organization to feel like they are part of the team, that they feel like they're part of the team success, that the boat is being rowed the same direction by all, however many employees are under the the Detroit Lions umbrella. And um, look, when you deal with people in that building, whether it's, again, custodial staff or people in the kitchen or, um, you know, people that are running the, the video equipment, like there's just a lightness to their being now. Like nobody is walking on eggshells anymore. Everybody's friendly. It's happy. It goes back to that positivity that we started this call with. And, uh, you know, it, it starts with Sheila. It, it absolutely starts with Sheila, but a lot of credit goes to Chris for helping her execute her vision. Yeah. Let me ask you uh, about Dan Campbell. What's the one, the biggest misconception that people have about him? You've spent a lot of time with him. You've been able to get to know him a little bit. Um, There's a general consensus about, about Dan Campbell. There's the national media kind of kneecappy thing and that, but fans kind of have gotten past that. But what's the one thing that people misunderstand the most about him? I think most of those things are, are fading away. But the, the one thing that almost everybody that, that works with him behind the scenes, um, particularly on the coaching staff, the players is he's really smart, you know? And, and I think sometimes that gets lost in the, what do you want to call the meathead persona? Right. Mm -hmm. And, and look at like, I think he probably wears his meatheadedness as, as a badge of honor. I mean, that was the, the type of guy he was, was the, the gritty physical, um, smash mouth football player at a position that is, naturally all those things if you're doing it well, but um, I think he's progressive in the way he thinks about the game. I think he's, you know, he's con- uh, we give Dave Phipp and the special teams, all these credits for these, these fakes and this execution of fakes. It's all Dan Campbell. Like obviously Phipps out there executing it, but the, the, the philosophical reason they're doing it, the man that's pulling the strings on the decisions is Dan Campbell because he just, hates punting the ball and um he's he's like ahead of the curve on analytics and you think of like coaches that would be ahead of the curve on analytics and you think of the the mike mcdaniels of the world uh, exactly. um, but it, it really it's dan campbell is is ahead of that stuff uh and and he he while he still embraces the old school mentality of football he's applied it to the modern game and grown and changed and evolved as the game has evolved, he doesn't reject new ideas. And I, I think that is a, a unique thing. And it's particularly a unique thing that for a guy that was a former player who played for 
Bill Parcells of all people, right? Like one of the, um, I guess, most stereotypical pictures I can think of as a coach is, is Bill Parcells. Yeah, he fits directly in the silo of fictional coaches. So um, I, I think that's probably the, the biggest misconception of Campbell is, is just his, his intelligence and willingness to evolve that, um, you know, make him uh, really above and beyond a, a good coach more so than just the, the motivational tactics. I got a little question to spin off of that. You talked about how Dan is behind a lot of the, the special teams creativity how much influence does he have with the offense and Ben Johnson's creativity? Um, how, how much of that is can be attributed to Dan? How much, or and also like how open is Dan to? It, it's pretty clear that he's open to letting Ben do what he wants to do with it. But it, how how much fingerprint is of Dan on Ben's offense? It's definitely there. I, I think the the unique thing about Ben's offense is it's got fingerprints of everybody on the staff. And that's, that's kind of the, the cool thing about it. Um, you know, I got that, that chance to sit down with, with Ben this summer as well. And, um, that, that was my sole purpose of that interview, right? Like I, I talked to him last year for a season feature and it was more about the, the golf relationship in, in year one and like, how is he going to make golf better quarterback? And I, I asked something kind of like offhandedly, like what's, what's the foundation of this offense? And it, it's where I realized for the first time, like there wasn't one, like it, it's this, we hear all the time with defenses about defenses being multiple and, and you don't hear it as much with offense. Like most offensive guys are set in their, I'm a West coast guy or I'm a uh, air Coriel guy. And like Ben Johnson's a little bit of everything. Um, and, and so I said, well, we can't get into that now because that's a big conversation, but I would like to come back to that. And then I thought he was going to get a head coaching job and we'd never have a shot. So, um, you know, that's what we did this year is we, we sat down and look at, there are bases our foundations to what he does. There's the Daryl Bevel West coast offense. There's the Mike Martz digit system. There's uh, a lot of Gase and Peyton Manning. And if you want to even go back all the way to Tom Moore, former Lions offensive coordinator that helped Manning build that system in Indianapolis, like yeah. those are kind of like the biggest parts of the pie. But what makes Ben Johnson really unique is they're always, he's always mining his coaches around him, you know, former, um, current for ideas from from schemes that they came from and uh you know a good example of that was steve hyden shows up as as a tight ends coach and what is steve hyden's background from arizona he's got cliff kingsbury and he's got bruce arians yep. two really uh high-end offensive minds ben does like <laughs> i don't know much about either one of those systems he goes so i'm like i cannot wait to like just dig into steve hyden's brain and find out what things can we incorporate into what we're doing um to, to make this thing even bigger and better. And so look, there is plenty of, of Dan Campbell in that offense um, in terms of what he learned from Sean Payton, what he learned from Bill Parcells and they definitely run plays. And, and I, I don't have the example all the time, but Ben Johnson gave me one where he's like this play we ran on this critical situation that scored us a touchdown was a hundred percent, a play that Sean Payton ran in new Orleans that Dan Campbell said, I think this would be a good fit. And, Ben's like, yeah, let's find a way to work it in. So, um, you know, the, the fourth down aggression is obviously a big Campbell thing, but like, um, 
that there is his his fingerprints are are all over everything in the organization but you know offensively it's just it's so big i mean anybody and everybody in that room can offer up ideas from Seth Ryan to Steve Oliver, like the lowest level assistants are are coming up with some of these really creative plays that Ben Johnson puts in. I think that's probably uh, the the greatest thing about what he does as a coach. Yeah, I think that that kind of goes about how how they they fit together as a as a front office staff because it, the, the, the what we had and this is this is probably a reaction to the previous regime. And and one of the things we've seen, if you go back to from Marinelli on, it was always a wild pendulum swing from one side to the other as to how we, how we wanted our coach to be right. And this is why we went, Oh no, no, no. Jim Schwartz crazy. Like everything's off the, off the hook. Let's get Caldwell, right? <laughs> Completely different personality. Okay. Let's get yep. um, um, Patricia. And Patricia really left a mark. Bob Quinn really, really left a mark. And and it was red, swollen, and bruised. I think but... <laughs> uh, yeah, scar is the word you're looking for. <laughs> but this bounce back was one, and I think this is what what has really led to the result. Because of those walls and those those barriers that were built, they recognized the value in working across between the rooms even of players across the coaches up and down vertically and horizontally across the organization. And they've really sought to create an organization and keep people that are able to work that way. And hearing how all these folks, you know, I've, I've heard a lot about Ben and, and, and Hank and Tanner and coach, uh, you know, coach Campbell, how they work together. Steve Hyden heard, uh, heard a lot about some of the, the input that he's been putting in, but there's somebody that, Everyone seems to have been really, really quiet about, and he was he was hired the same time as Hayden, and that's Dre Bly, big name, big Lions kind of name from from a long time, and uh, had a huge impact on the team. What have you seen? What is what is it that he's brought, and how does he fit in on that defensive side of the ball? What do you think his impact has been? Because there's not been a lot of put out there about Dre and and his his impact. Yeah, I, I think probably lesser so on the the guys that kind of established who they are, right? Like, I, I don't know if um, he's he's changed a whole lot about who Cam Sutton is and, and probably even to an extent, like, how much impact he's had on, on Jerry Jacobs, right? Like, that guy is is very clear in, in who he is um, and, and has a good relationship with Aaron Glenn in, in that regard, but... Um, Bly's good for the younger players, right? Um, in teaching confidence, in teaching technique. Uh, look, I mean, that's this is a guy that that had a very long career, um, but not only that, a very productive career from the ball side of things, right. um, making making plays on the ball, and he did it without having the ideal frame or athleticism. Uh, a lot of what he did was was instinctual, um, and and you can never discount the value of confidence in in cornerback play. And it's it's not just having that down in and down in confidence. It's not letting your confidence in your ability be rattled by the mistake. Because look, the NFL rules favor receivers. The receivers are getting better and better and better by the year they're going to win. They are going to win often. And so you have to, 
um, have the mentality to know that I'm going to lose sometimes, but I'm still confident in my ability that I'm going to win the next snap. And so that's where a guy like, like Bly comes in. It's almost like a, uh, a life coach as much as a football coach, right? Like you need to get them mentally uh, prepared. And, and I think he does a good job with that. There's a, uh, there's a new coach this year that uh, doesn't get a lot of run. And I, I think there's some fuzziness about what he actually does. John Fox has been in and I think I have an idea of what he does, but I would love for you to tell me if I'm right or wrong on that. So uh, what, what do you see John Fox? What's his influence on the defense? How's he helping Aaron Glenn um, and, and integrating into to the lion's land? It's been a long time since we talked to Fox. I think we talked to him during training camp, but when I see him, his primary focus is the defensive backfield, right? And so, um, obviously, that was a major point of emphasis this offseason. They they overhauled the personnel. Uh, they made some changes in the coaching staff, and and Foxes is really part of that. Um, and so, uh, he's working with them on on the whole of of uh, working together, the communication, the being in the right position. He's um, helped for Bly and. Uh, Brian Duker, the, uh, I don't even know if like safety's coach is the appropriate terminology for him. Cause I think he's more than that at this stage. And, um, you, you hit on it a little bit, right? Like he is, he is a veteran sounding board for Aaron Glenn for as much as Aaron Glenn saw in 15 years as a player and a handful of years as a position coach and in third year coordinator, John Fox has seen more. Um, and he's seen, uh, just, more personalities, more players, more schemes, more, uh, more football. And so, you know, as, as Aaron Glenn is, is constantly working to evolve and get better. And, um, you know, I think he's really shown that ability to, uh, adapt both big picture schematically, but also week to week or, or in games. I, I think Fox's influence is there he's the sounding board to kind of work through some of his ideas and to be uh, more efficient overall in that that process awesome that is that's that's great insight um justin I, I want to just really mention because you know we do this thing um <laughs> we're here for saint jude and and you're here for saint jude as well to help us out um imploring folks who love the content and want to do something good. It's getting to that season of the year where we're giving is a, is a big highlight for folks. But we're here 24 hours. We're here the first the, the first hour again with Justin kicking it off as, as is tradition now. Um, stjude.org slash DLP. Fully tax deductible donations. Great way to help families, kids, kids that are sick with cancer, research against cancer to help cure some serious things. I know we've all been touched either by someone we know family members friends uh multiples in many cases by folks who have suffered from cancer it's not just the kids and their families that that, that benefit from the the research that these guys do over at saint jude and uh but but it is a, a wide reaching benefit that comes out of what's done there. So we really ask everyone as you're, as you're watching, just, you know, it's, it's great to talk lions. It's, it's, it's great to get the insights that someone like Justin can provide with all his time he spends and, and the professionalism that he brings to his role. But uh, we don't want to, we don't want to lose sight 
of of trying to, to get those buckets of ducats into uh, St. Jude. So uh, stjude.org slash DLP. Thank you, everyone, for uh, for doing your part along the way. Justin, I know we've 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 only got so much time with you as much as. You know, you would just want to sit here for the entire 24 hours. I, I recognize you do have a day job and, and you do it darn well. So um, with that, I want to thank you for joining us. Appreciate it, man. It was great insight. As always, love talking to you. Love having you on, man. No, I appreciate you guys having me. And I appreciate you guys. Uh, what you do here. It's it's a it's a really great thing. All right. Awesome. We thank you for being first every year. Um, we count <laughs> on it and we it's, it's awesome that you do this. And uh, one one quick parting shot question. Yeah. How much how much uh, has Jonah Jackson's injury, if at all, impacted his potential contract extension? I don't think so. I mean, I I I almost chalked this up to another turf monster injury like the these high ankle sprains, like all the injuries we talk about with the turf causing like it feels like that's the one we've seen the largest increase of over the um, last five or 10 years. And. Uh, maybe maybe we're just learning about high ankle sprains, but um, this is this is another one of those. I I don't think that influences it in in any way. To be honest with you, interesting in that Big V, uh, his injuries obviously will end, but his age too are going to influence probably his future with the team. Yeah, um, back is a little bit different there. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nobody ever used to have a back problem. <laughs> yeah, look Andre at Jeff and I are both over forty. Line. We uh we we know all about back issues. I didn't realize you guys were were that old. My goodness. Uh, All right. (laughs) Appreciate you both joining. Thank you so much for the insights, Justin. Thanks for everything. Always. You're you're a grand dude, man. Be well, and uh, we'll talk again soon. All right. All right. Let's bring it in here together. Let's go. Let's go. Lions on three. One, two, three. You've had enough of that shit.